Reflections on William Shakespeare's play Hamlet Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 So we might begin Hamlet by noticing that the first thing that we see as the story opens is that there's an elaborate and frantic preparation for war going on in Denmark. So frenzied that uh, it's puzzling to those that have noticed it. Marcellus says, Why such daily cast of brazen cannon and foreign mart for implements of war? It's a question that has not lost its potency, by the way. Why such daily casts of brazen cannon and foreign mart for implements of war? Why such impress of shipwrights whose sore task does not divide the Sunday from the week? Now, an awful lot to be said just about this passage. There is this tremendous build-up of the implements of war, which is, in terms of the Old Testament prophets' uh, warning, it is... Uh, responding to whatever the provocation is by, as the prophets would say, trusting in the works of your own hand. Uh, there begins the slide into, into pagan uh, sensibilities, trusting in the works of your own hands. So, so in the face of that provocation, to turn immediately to the forges and the, and the bellows to make those implements of war. But perhaps even more interestingly, such impress of shipwrights whose sore task does not divide the Sunday from the week. They're doing this seven days a week. There's, there, again, to use Rene Girard's uh, categories once more, this is a crisis of distinctions. This is a situation in which this depicts a cultural confusion wherein this war-making frenzy it has uh, preempted any religious sensibility. Sunday is simply another day to get out another day's worth of war material. There's, uh, and that tells us not so much about the, the industrial schedule as it does about something gone out of the heart of the cultural enterprise. Well, Horatio and Hamlet have been to the university. And they're home now for Hamlet's father's funeral. And also, by the way, for Hamlet's mother's remarriage. Hamlet thinks that the latter happened a little too soon after the former, for his taste. But in any case, they're home. And Horatio uh, has been told that the ghost of Hamlet Sr. has appeared on the, on the heath. And uh, he speaks of old Hamlet. But I just want to call attention to a reference of his that is in parentheses in the, in the text. In speaking of old Hamlet, he says, Our valiant Hamlet... For so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this fortune brought. So now, two things are brought to our attention. The reason for the arms buildup is that Hamlet, old Hamlet, killed King Fortunebras of Norway and appropriated some of his land, provoking, you guessed it, the reciprocal cycle of violence. King Fortunebras, as always had somebody, a son, a cousin, a brother, you know. And in this case, he had a son. And so this reciprocal cycle of violence begins. Young Fortunebras is going to what? 
You got it. Revenge the death of old Fortune Bros and get back to land. This is the way, this is how the merry-go-round goes, see? So, why are we building up implements of war? Well, because Norway's headed this way. Young Fortune Bros is headed this way. Anybody stop to ask why? Well, come to think of it, because we headed that way last time and got him, and now they're coming this way. Well, let's not get into that. So let's not get too far into that analysis. Let's just look at it this way. He's coming our way. Let's get ready. But if you'll notice, it is... It, it, you look a little closer, and there's this sense of uh, the, the pathos of that inevitable cycle of violence. There's that. The other thing is, he says... O our valiant Hamlet, for so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this fortune bros. That parenthesis, somebody has paid a high price in college tuition to introduce that parenthesis into the consciousness. He's been to university. He now knows that we think Hamlet is valiant, old Hamlet, but the guys on the other side, they think their guy is valiant. They think our guy is a creep. So the parenthesis is an, is an immensely important one. He says, we think our valiant Hamlet, parentheses, for so this side of our known world esteemed him. Now, a university is where you go to find that out. That's what a university ought to be teaching. The university ought to be teaching us about the universe. That's why, that's why it's called that. Now, the price you pay, in addition to the tuition, is that you have to be deprived of your parochialism, of your provisional fidelity. To the extent that I become university-educated, that is to say, to the extent that I begin to acquire a universal sensibility, the old parochialism, the old kind of patriotisms weaken. And I don't have those fidelities to the degree that I had them before. Well, that's really the important part of this story. So, Hamlet and Horatio have been to the university. They now know something about the whole picture. And now they've come back to Denmark. And when they get back, guess what? Denmark seems a little cramped. If you've been to the university and you've had that picture, that larger picture of things, and you try to come back in to the consensus reality, which is bounded by your own cult group, your own tribe, it seems a little cramped. And so when Horatio looks at the, at the, at the armaments buildup, he just throws in this little line. He says, you know, by the way, there's lots of things going on in Denmark right now that uh, don't bode well. But he begins this little speech with a tremendous line. He says, a moat it is to trouble the mind's eye. And then he goes on with the speech, and I'll quote it. But a moat it is to trouble the mind's eye. What a wonderfully oblique reference to the gospel passage about taking the, taking the moat out of the, the other person's eye while having a beam in one's own, taking the taking the duck, a speck of dust or, or splinter out of the other person's eye and having a beam in one's own. And, and having been to the university, he, he, he begins to understand. We call him valiant, but they have their version of valiant. 
you see. A mote it is to trouble the mind's eye. And I'll read the, and then he goes on. In the most high and palmy state of Rome, a little ere the mightiest Julia, the mighty, mightiest Julius fell, the graves stood tenantless. That is to say, there were ghost walking streets then too. And the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. As stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. These are omens. And even the like percuse of fierce events as harbingers preceding still the fates and prologue to the omen coming on have heaven and earth together demonstrated upon our climatures and countrymen. So as then, so now, strange things are going on. Ghosts are appearing. There's a feeling of something rotten in the state of Denmark. That is to say, something is wrong. Now, let's hearken back to our discussions in the Iliad, uh, th thanks to the analysis of René Girard about some of these things, our discussions about the this uh, sort of sense of sickness, a sense of something wrong, and the immediate, visceral, unconscious, instinctive reaction is to find the pharmakos. The pharmakos is the, is, uh, the Greek version of the scapegoat. It means the thing which is both the sickness and the cure. And this pharmacos is, is the one who can die, whose elimination will restore health. So there's no, uh, there's no direct reference here to the pharmacos, but we can recognize the need in this situation. Something's wrong. Who is going to take the rap for it? And who can we kill or run out of town in order to restore harmony? Okay, as I said, Hamlet and Horatio have returned for the funeral. There's also been a wedding. Hamlet's not happy about the short interim between those two things. Hamlet has also, by the way, been to... The university that they've been to is not just any old university, but the University of Wittenberg. Now, the University of Wittenberg uh, is where was the, the, one, of the, one of the centers of the Reformation. So it has another little spin on it. It's the place where you go to learn not only about the universe, but you also learn about a, a way of a new sort of independence, a new sort of uh, personal assimilation of all of that, so that you become independent of the of the hierarchical authorities. You see, it has another. The graduates have this other quality to them. It's also a place, by the way, as this, this is totally apocryphal in terms of the text, but I'll throw it in as a, it w being the center of the Reformation, one of the centers of the Reformation, it would also be a place where you would never get your baccalaureate without having uh, a completely studied the, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans was the backbone of the Reformation. Well, uh, among the salient points in Paul's letter to the Romans is be not conformed to the zeitgeist, if I can use that word, of your age. Be not conformed to the eon you live in. Well, let's just imagine, there's absolutely no textual reference to this, but let's just imagine Hamlet's had his course on the letter to the Roman. Well, now, how do you go back home and be Prince of Denmark? Under some very unusual circumstances. 
one of the things that happens to you when you when you get a quote unquote university education, I'm talking archetypically, not in the practical order. The practical order doesn't do this anymore much. Well, to some extent. One of the things that happens is that it takes that fervor for parochial activity away from you. When when uh, Hamlet is musing over the fact that Claudius is now king instead of his father, he says of Claudius that he is no more like my father than I to Hercules. Interesting. Hercules is the archetypical hero. Remember, when Aeneas needed to work up his enthusiasm, he didn't have a Herculean archetype he could that would just take hold of him. He had to actually experience a liturgical investing of the archetype in him before he could go out and be the warrior. Well, the same exact situation here for Hamlet. He has... The Herculean archetype is not an automatic response. And one of the first things that happens in this story is that he tries to, uh, he, he tries to create a kind of liturgical activation of the Herculean archetype, which we'll talk about in just a second. Well, the name of the game is, as always, revenge. The ghost appears to Hamlet and says the magic word, revenge. Revenge his foul and most unnatural murder, his being his own. Revenge the foul and most unnatural murder. And Hamlet says, Haste me to know it that I, with wings as swift as meditation and the thoughts of love, may sweep to my revenge. That's a little bit jarring. With wings as swift as meditation and the thoughts of love? We know, without him having already told us, that he does, there's no Hercules in that. He's not, it's, it's not in him. It's not the kind of person he is. The ghost says, I find thee apt, and duller shouldst thou be than the fat weed that rots itself in ease on Lethe Wharf, the river of forgetfulness, wouldst thou not stir in this? So, go to. And he exits by saying, Remember me. Hamlet says, Remember thee, yea, from the table of my memory I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past that youth and observation copied there, and thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. He says, I'll have to go back and erase my notebooks. And he literally sits down at the table and begins to write in his notebook. Now, this is charming and telling. This is a university lad. And from the point of view of the heroic response, it is absolutely pitiable. But from the point of view of consciousness, it's a step forward. He sits down and writes in his notebook. And then he gives a little soliloquy at the end of which he says, The time is out of joint, O cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. And the problem, of course, is that he was born to set it right. He will have to set it right. And how is he going to do that? He is stuck where Virgil is stuck. He has to somehow take that university sensibility and put it to use in the practical historical order. And how is he going to do it? Well, Act Two, uh, everybody begins to dissemble. Uh, uh, Hamlet begins to put an antic disposition on, as he says. Polonius hires spies to spy on his son Laertes. Claudius hires Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to spy on Hamlet. Laertes, her brother, and Polonius, her father, in, uh, uh, encourage uh, Ophelia 
to uh, repulse the advances of uh, Hamlet and refuse to see him. But, and there's a little exchange between uh, Polonius and Hamlet, which I will refer to here just to make the point that there's, it's one thing, in the proper order of things, the elders ought to be the wise, but there's a difference between this being a, an old person and being an old soul. And having been at the university, Hamlet comes back into Denmark as an old soul, and he meets Polonius, who is an old man, and the difference between them is depicted in the following. Polonius, Polonius is great. He's filled with all these cliches. He speaks one cliche after another. Somebody once said about Shakespeare, this is always attributed, by the way, to a college co-ed, which is sexist, uh, and it doesn't matter. The, the, the attribution is uh, the reason she likes Shakespeare is because he was full of so many quotes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Polonius, <laughs> Polonius is really full of, filled with quotes, and they're all cliched, just predictable kind of nonsense. So Polonius walks in and sees Hamlet reading a book. Hamlet is still in his mind. He's still in the university place, not in Denmark. What do you read, my lord? Polonius says, what do you read, my lord? Hamlet says, words, words, words. <laughs> what is the matter, my lord? Hamlet says, between who? I mean, the matter that you read, my lord. Hamlet says, slanders, sir. For the satirical rogue says here that old men have gray beards, that their faces are wrinkled, their eyes purging thick amber and plum tree gum, and that they have a plentiful lack of wit, together with most weak hams. All of which, sir, though I most powerfully and potently believe, yet I hold it not honesty to have it thus set down. For you yourself, sir, should be as old as I am, if, like a crab, you should go backward. And Polonius says, what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> the old person meets the old soul, and uh, there's this jarring sense of where is the wisdom. Polonius has been parading his cliched wisdom before us in the scenes just preceding this, telling, sharing it with his son and with his daughter, sharing it with anybody who'll listen. And uh, here's Hamlet. In, a, in an exchange with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Hamlet says, Denmark's a prison. And it is, you see, after you've been out there in that wider world. Denmark's a prison. And Rosencrantz says, then the world's one. And Hamlet says, a goodly one, in which there are many confines, wards, and dungeon, dungeons, Denmark being one of the worst. No matter where you go, you're in one. They're all... It's, it's not, it's not as though he's saying Denmark's bad and everything else is okay. They're all like this. Polonius walks in while he's talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he gets another, Shakespeare gets another little goose in here. Hamlet looks at Polonius, points to Polonius, and says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that great baby you see there is not yet out of his swaddling clothes. And it's a perfect commentary on being caught up, still contained in that little parochial consensus reality. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't the intellectual arrogance if somebody, if somebody's been off and got a little education. This has to do with the cosmology. This poor guy is still totally caught up in it. He says these things with this, with this uh, you know, relaxed self-assurance that is so kind of convincing. 
That great baby there, you see, is not yet out of his swaddling clothes. Swaddling clouts, it means swaddling clothes. Okay. The, the players come, friends of Hamlet's from college. Hamlet says to the, to the first player, I want you to speak a passionate speech. I, I have a speech I want you to speak. Remember the problem with Hercules. No more like my father than I to Hercules. He didn't have a liturgy. Aeneas had this, uh, the Feast of Hercules that he could attend uh, at Evander's place, and he could get the Herculean thing going in him. But Hamlet has to, Hamlet's a little further along, so he has to invent his own. I'd like to hear this speech. Hamlet says, I heard thee speak a speech once, but it was never acted. By the way, never acted is interesting. The problem is to get the archetype off of the, off of the, page off of the stage into expression. That's Hamlet's problem. It was never acted, or if it was, not more than once. For the play I remember pleased not the million. T'was caviary to the general, which means it was too sophisticated to mo for most people. Now this is Shakespeare talking about theater. Okay? And he's gonna, this is like a, this is not only a play within a play, this is a Commentary within a commentary on the play that's within the play about the play. Uh, what's, what's being said here, I think, is that this play, Hamlet, has more to it than you realize. Later on, Shakespeare will even, in the, in the, in the form of the, the actors, will make a point about how the groundlings, they don't know anything about what's going on, which is very unkind because they, they were the source of financial support for Shakespeare, but the point is there's more to this play than the groundlings that is to say the people just come hoot and holler are going to get out of it. And, and oh so true about this play. Well never acted, not more than once if it was acted, pleased not the million, too sophisticated for most. And so Hamlet says, I would like to have you read, the, uh, speak this speech. One speech in it I chiefly loved. T'was Aeneas's tale of Dido. And thereafter of it especially, where he speaks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line. Let me see, let me see. And he tries to remember the speech. And he begins the speech. The rugged Pyrrhus. Now Pyrrhus is the son of Achilles, who kills Priam. Achilles embraces Priam and they weep. But his son Pyrrhus kills him. So he begins the speech. The rugged Pyrrhus, like the Hyrcanian beast. And then Hamlet says, "'Tis not so. It begins with Pyrrhus." And he tries to remember the speech again. He didn't get it right when he first started. And then he gets it. The rugged Pyrrhus, whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry, more dismal. Head to foot, now he is total ghouls, horribly tricked with blood of father's, mother's, daughter's son. The hellish Pyrrhus, old grandsire Priam seeks. Now that's the vision he needs to awake. That's the kind. He's got, he's got to come from being a, a university boy to that. See? He has to go. Pyrrhus is the one who kills old Priam. What Aeneas has to do is kill old Claudius. And so he's trying to conjure up the archetype in this speech. So he says, Can you give me that? That's what I need. See? 
He puts his nickel in the in the jukebox. The one I want is the one I need. That one. That's the one I need to get going. And so the player speaks the speech. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, and Hamlet needs to have his sword descend upon the milky head of Reverend Claudia. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. Seemed in the air to stick. So, as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and, like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. This is all in the speech. But that, that paralysis is likened to a pause in the storm, but it tells us about the play Hamlet. That paralysis is the contantum, the hesitation. The hesitation, and then, the, and then after the hesitation in the, in the speech, it goes on. So after Pyrrhus's pause, aroused vengeance sets him new a work, and never did Cyclops' hammers fall on Mars's armor, forged for proof turn with less remorse than Pyrrhus's bleeding sword now falls on Priam. He kills him. And we've got to go back to this. Remember, he's coming down with the sword. The, the theory is that this is the stroke that will end all wars, or at least this one. This is the stroke that will finally put an end to it. This, you see, notice what Shakespeare did. Aroused vengeance set him new work. Never did the Cyclops' hammer, hammers fall on Mars's armor forged for proof turn with less remorse than Pyrrhus's sword fell. Cyclops was the assistant to Vulcan in the underworld where the, where the forging of armor for the god of war Mars took place. So what this stroke of killing the old king, which, is, which one thinks is the end of all wars, or at least of this one, is likened to is the forging of the armor of Mars that will last forever. You see, it's like the labyrinth. This seems like the way out. In fact, it is the way to be totally stuck in it. Tremendous comparison. and totally jars with what, with, with what the surface of the thing is saying. Hamlet says, Stay on, come to Hecuba. Hecuba is the wife of Priam, and if Hamlet is going to kill Claudius, the Hecuba in the piece is Gertrude, his mother. So he says, get to the Hecuba part. Well, that's going to just take it away. That takes away the enthusiasm. For look what happens to Hecuba. The player goes on. But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamor that she made unless things mortal move them not at all, would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. The gods themselves would have cried if they had seen the anguish in Hecuba's face. Well, that tells Hamlet about what's going to happen to Gertrude when he, when he kills Claudius, if he does. Hamlet left alone on stage 
says, Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage waned, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing? For Hecuba, what's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba? He cried for Hecuba. Not for, not for Priam. And it's that that's touched Hamlet. What would he do had he the motive and cue for passion that I have, says Hamlet. And Hamlet goes into this speech and he interrupts it. He says, Yet I, a, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peak like John of dreams, unpregnant to my cause, and can say nothing. And then he blurts out, I think the way this has to be staged, is he blurts out, bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Oh, vengeance. Claudius has killed his father, and he is trying to awaken this vengeance. And then he calms down and says, why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father, murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words. Call out these names, calling names, trying to get this thing going. Well, we're going to leave him in this paralysis. He'll be in it a while. Uh, but I'd just like to bring it, just to conclude it with... Uh, something George Bernard Shaw said about Hamlet, and then reflect on a second. Shaw said, what happened to Hamlet was what happened 1,500 years before to Jesus. Born into the vindictive morality of Moses, he has evolved into the Christian perception of the futility and wickedness of revenge and punishment, founded on the simple fact that two blacks do not make a white. Well, I'm a little more inclined to Jesus' estimation of Moses than I am to Shaw's, but in any case, he makes a point, which is torn between a pagan response and a Christian response. And Hamlet is right there in the middle. The voice of the ghost of his father is calling him to a pagan response. It is the response that will lead back into the labyrinth. It will seem like the thing that will end evil, but it is in fact the thing that will forge the implements of war to last forever. It will add one more blow to the forging of those armors, that armor that will last forever. But Hamlet is exactly where we are. He is exactly where we are in, in history. He hears that voice, but he feels this other sensibility. He has been to the university, and he has been the, the recipient of the Christian dispensation. So both of those things are going on inside of him. The ideal thing to do after Hamlet would, would be to do Eliot's murder in the cathedral. That would bring the whole hero, heroic thing to a conclusion. And we could see Thomas Beckett and what he does here. But we're not where Thomas Beckett is, I'm sorry to say. We're, 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 we're Hamlet is. It would be nice if we could get a little further along to where Thomas Beckett is, but we're not. We're where Hamlet is. We hear the, both of those things. And we're stuck in that. Denis de Rougemont 
a French historian, said the first characteristic of a real vocation is ambiguity. We tend to think it's otherwise. We tend to think that the vocation is, the, is when ambiguity is eliminated. It's wonderful. The first characteristic of a real vocation is ambiguity. So we've been thinking about vocations. The Aeneid is a, was a poem about vocation. Uh, the voice of the old father, the vo term vocation comes from the word for to hear a voice, vocare. The voice of his father said, avenge this death and don't forget. That's the other thing, don't forget. So we've been thinking about vocations and hearing the voice and how to respond. So if you think about ambiguity and you go from Achilles to Odysseus to Aeneas to Hamlet, what you see is a growing sense of ambiguity, which means that there is another voice. There is something else that's being heard. And so the vocation begins by hearing, by being in that ambiguity, feeling a need to respond to the immediate historical moment you know, what, what did Lincoln say about the, about the victory of evil, evil? It's just that good men do nothing. Can't do that. But how, to keep, how not to respond to it in such a way that your, that your response simply anneals even further that eternal armor of war. When I read... Uh, when I read to my children, Hunt particularly is onto this thing about cliffhangers. He never wants to stop if we, you know, we don't, we're reading some book, you know. He never wants to stop unless it's a cliffhanger. And I'll say, that's enough, we've got to go to bed. He's no, that is not a cliffhanger. I mean, he's got this down, you know, what is and what is not a cliffhanger. <laughs> well, this, I, this is a cliffhanger. There's Hamlet. And it's a historical cliffhanger for us all, by the way. I'd like to start out by quoting, if I can uh, remember it, the, the, uh, a, pa a passage from the Red Cloud speech in John Neihart's uh, uh, Song of the Indian Wars. Red Cloud comes up, the fate of the Indian cause is clear to him, and he comes up to the campfire after the young Indian warriors have whipped up an enthusiasm for a what would be a suicidal th a lunge at the white forces. And uh, Red Cloud says, When our young feet pass across the holy mystery of grass, our eyes are darkened for the ways we go. And it is good, for to be young is to believe and do, as rooted things must blossom and be green. But when our eyes grow weary, having seen, and the flesh begins remembering the ground, there is a silence wiser than all sound, a seeing clearer than the sun, and nothing we have tried to do or done is what the Spirit meant. I thought of that passage just a few minutes ago because um, it's as though Hamlet, who is a young man, who ought still to be in that young phase where uh, rooted things must blossom and be green and, and, uh, and we go out and do things. He has been to the university and uh, has absorbed the Christian universality so that he has become prematurely mature, aware that nothing we have tried to do or done is what the Spirit meant. So he has already entered into that other realization, even though he is still physically a young man. 
And to make matters worse, of course, he has been, he has a great uh, uh, responsibility laid on him, and that is to set things right in Denmark and to eliminate the evil that is there. But before he, the ghost appears to him and, uh, and begins his real agony, uh, he already is in a conflicted state. Here's a little, the first soliloquy of, of the play, and it's before the ghost appears to him. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Well, imagine the university has taught him the parochialism of Denmark, or, or let's put it this way, the parochialism of place. And Christianity has taught him the parochialism of time, that is to say, of mere biological life. And he is aware of these other universalities outside of Denmark and, a, and an existence outside of biological time, from which now he judges all of the things that happen within those smaller confines. So he's disillusioned. But those who have lived in, dis, in, in illusions ought not to regard disillusionment too critically. It's an important phase that one has to go through. If it's been an illusion, disillusionment is progress. And so he is disillusioned by the mythos of Denmark and, and the notion, the unspoken notion, that everything that's important is what's happening right now. For him, biological life and Denmark are both provisional forms of existence, and he is now judging them both from a larger perspective. And then the ghost comes along and introduces the problem of evil. Once you have that larger perspective, what are you going to do about evil? And his father says, his father's ghost says, revenge the murder, and introduces a cruel irony. To cure the crime of regicide, Hamlet must commit the crime of regicide. There's the problem in, in a nutshell, and uh, there are a thousand versions of it, but that's the fundamental problem, the fundamental contradiction. The evil of one murder must be countered by the perpetration of another. And so it wasn't out of any kind of sentimentalism that Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, resist not evil. But what Jesus is commenting on is the cyclical violence. Where does it end? And then this strange thing, resist not evil. So to murder in order to end the murder. To wage war in order to end war. To repress in order to end repression. And on down the list. Now, most cultures sponsor, sponsor rationalizations which keep the moral absurdity of those positions from coming home to us. But Hamlet, because of the combination of his university tenure and his Christian exposure, is sufficiently alienated from the tribal mythos that he is no longer numb to that absurdity. The cultural moral anesthetic is not working on him. And if that weren't enough, 
there is a prologue right before the ghost says revenge the murder the ghost utters a prologue which arrests hamlet's will on the very threshold of the ghost's attempt to arouse his will here's what the ghost says i am thy father's spirit doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away this is purgatory statement but that i am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house i could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul freeze thy young blood make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres thy knotted and combined locks to part and each particular hair to stand on in like quills upon the fretted porpentine but this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood and hamlet says oh god that's before he's heard anything about the murder hamlet says oh god now why does he say oh god because he has just had a first-hand report about the need to to suffer purgatorial torture for the crimes committed in life and the next thing the ghost said says is go commit one okay now he says he's having to suffer for the foul crime the play has to stand on its own there's nothing in this play to indicate that old king hamlet committed any crimes any foul crimes other than those that were just the necessary ones involved in being a ruler of his time we have no indication of him being uh, other than a normal king and what hamlet has just learned is that the behavior of a normal king has merited torture for these foul crimes 